Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the DLC Drop Podcast. Today it's my pleasure to welcome Bob here. Bob is a professor and the director of sports and entertainment management, University of North Texas. We're going to talk about what makes this program so unique and special for not only the students, but their partners. We're going to talk traditional sports versus esports and a serendipitous moment that has resulted in Bob becoming the managing partner of a Dutch soccer team. Join me in talking to Bob. Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the DLC DLC Drop Drop Podcast. Podcast. All right. Thank you so much, Bob, here for being here today on the DLC Drop Podcast. It's a pleasure knowing you over the last, I think it's been four years since you, or a little under four years since you joined University of North Texas as professor and director of the sports entertainment MBA program. Is that right? That is correct. We just started our fifth year and you and I met each other for the first time, I think during that first year, you were still with GameStop. I was. And I remember, oh, I need to buy shares of this company. (laughs) And I never did. (laughs) That was, that's something, you know, a lot of people, I think were in the same boat as you. And I do have some friends that haven't seen in a while. Every time I see them, they're tan. I, I can imagine. I mean, you know? I might not have sat here either, but no, almost five. Yeah, we're starting our fifth year. I got here in 2018 to start the MBA and the BBA programs in sport entertainment management at the University of North Texas. When I came here, we had zero students, right? We started from, right. from, from scratch, which was one of the, the main reasons why I wanted to come here because it was so exciting to you know, really imprint your vision on a program, bring in the right people. I've been blessed with some really great colleagues who've now joined me and, and, and to build a really good program. And heading into the fifth year, I think that we're well on, on, on track. We're very proud of, of our student accomplishments. Our MBA program has 100% job placement, has 85% wow. our students get either promotion or a new job after starting the degree, not even, they don't have to wait wow. for graduation, they, it just happens. How many students stop coming to class once they get that promotion though? <laughs> I know you're making a joke. In our core degree, everybody finished it. Okay. However, last year when, you know, when, when everybody came out of COVID, we had in our online program some students who put it on the back burner that we hope come back. Right. Because suddenly were all these jobs available again, right? Everybody's rehiring after they got, you know, after some people were dropped at the beginning of COVID. Right. So no, we actually struggled a little bit and was tough for this year to recruit students to come in because it might have been for the first time in history that the supply and demand for sport jobs came slightly closer. They still don't meet. There's still more demand for these jobs and there's a supply. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there were definitely more opportunities than normal, which is great. I mean, we're excited. And listen, if a student drops out of our program because they got a job, I mean, that's the best reason. Right. Uh, but yeah, we do hope that they come back. Yeah. So you made the point that, okay, this is a brand new program when you arrived. Was this that the university themselves were seeking to start this? Or did you reach out to them and say, hey, I think you are a university should do this or, or a combination? Of now they, they hired the headhunter to, to find somebody to lead this. So the University of North Texas, based, of course, in Denton here in Dallas-Fort Worth, yep. which is this really nice, cool college towns on the fringe off, right? Yep. Part of DFW, but still kind of like its own on thing. On the edge, yep. On the edge. They were approached by the city of Frisco to open up a campus within the city. 
because Frisco felt they missed out on some R&D companies on the tech side. And they said, hey, we need to have a research one, high intensity research university in, in, in Frisco. So they approached Frisco. Frisco says, yes, we're excited about this. We want to do this with you guys. However, this is going to get political. We have to show a good fit between the city of Frisco and UNT. Sports USA. City of Sports City USA. Yep. Hence, we need to have a really good sport business program. And mm. so it, it's a very important program to do the university. It's a flagship program. It fits into their ambition to be in Frisco this coming spring. We finally have our new building opening. We're Incredible. excited about that. It's a beautiful building. You can see it from the North Tollway. If you're driving north on your right. And this program was a big part of that. So they technically started the program before I arrived. So I arrived when the first year was supposed to kick off. Yeah. But there were a lot of trouble still. A lot of things not worked out. No MBA students had signed up. So my job was to really fix the curriculum, have the position be clear within the university and start recruiting students and build a a strong industry advisor board, which was so important to us. Yes. of course, you're one of the advisory board members for our program, and thank you for that. So I'm happy to be thank here and, and, and for once return the service to you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, 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 the industry has been a really big part of why we're so successful. The DLC Drop podcast is sponsored by Ice Shaker. I've been a huge fan of this brand for the past few years, ever since I met founder Chris Gronkowski. What I love about this product is the brand story, the functionality, and the customization. iShaker is a Shark Tank company invested in by Mark Cuban and Alex Rodriguez, owned by NFL players Rob Gronkowski and Chris Gronkowski. I love using my iShaker anytime I'm driving to the podcast studio, I'm going skateboarding, or I'm at the gym. No matter what I'm doing, it just does a great job of keeping my drinks hot or cold. The customization for iShaker is something that's super unique. You can get any name, just about any logo engraved onto your iShaker and delivered to you within just three to five business days. Get your own DLC Drop branded iShaker at iShaker.com forward slash DLC Drop. Save 20% on all iShaker products with the discount code DLC Drop. And so listeners who aren't as familiar with Frisco, it's known as Sports City USA, and that's because I believe it's the only city in the United States that represents all five, possibly now six, traditional sports. So if, if keep me honest here. So we've got Dallas Cowboys headquarters, partner with yep. UNT. We've got the Rangers AA team, the Rough Riders. Yep. We've got the Texas Legends, which are the NBA G League team. Yep. PGA of America just moved in the last couple of years, I want to say. Yep. We've got the Dallas Stars. Is it their practice facility? Practice facility and headquarters are practice in Frisco. Faci- yep. You've got FC Dallas. Yep. And you can't leave out Complexity Gaming. It's yep. around at the eSports. So that's essentially seven. Yep. And we've had Mayor Masso on the show, a for- former mayor, three-term mayor of Frisco. But talk a little bit about how the unique situation that your students find themselves in with being surrounded by all of these incredible sports properties. Yeah, particularly if you put it into the broader perspective of sport management degrees, because sport management historically as a degree program came out of kinesiology, physical education, and had a really strong connection with athletic departments. Okay. So if you look at at what are known as the bigger or better programs in our field, 
You're talking about athletic departments in cities like Call Station, mm-hmm. Austin, Tallahassee, Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. You know, those kinds of cities. And that's great if you want to work in college athletics, but if you want to work in professional sports, those degree programs are not ideal because while you're there, you can't work or do anything. Right. Technically in the wrong location, all these great universities because of you know, land-grant universities. Right. And so for an urban university like UNT, who's located in a market like this, you know, where you can work with everyone, that's very exciting because our students, they're all working, they're all in gates, either part-time or volunteers or as interns, and that's what leads to uh, to jobs. But Frisco is, yeah, I, I did not know the list that you just created, but yes, of course, I knew about that. Yeah. But they claim to have more professional franchises per capita than any other city in the United States. I've never checked that, so as an academic, I have to always be careful about Making statements or agree to those statements, <laughs> but I, you know we also have Top Golf around the corner, right? Both True. The, the location there in the colony, as well as the headquarters downtown. You got Learfield headquarters in yep. Plano, right around the corner. You know you got these incredible companies, and I couldn't think of a better city in the United States, if not the world, where to build a sport business program. Absolutely. You make a good point about it typically being connected with kinesiology. I remember I I got my marketing degree at Sacramento State, got a great education. I took some kinesiology classes because I was athletic and had my friends were all athletes. And I remember being in a kinesiology class and typically those degrees don't result in very high salaries. And so I remember our teacher telling us like, oh, you know, those of you who have kinesiology degrees, you're don't worry about the salary. You're serving like the common good. <laughs> and I was the one business major in there. But it's a great point. And I think it's really cool because a lot of athletes go into kinesiology when either they know they're not going to make it pro or they can't continue their career through college. They're like, oh, I can be still be part of this thing. But there's missing the business component. And so what you're doing in a way is attracting people who have an affinity and experience in athletics, but also this business component that can enable you to have a great career. Correct. I, I think if you look at the, the, the kinesiology-based sport management programs, they focus more on nonprofits. They focus more on federations. Yep. They do focus on the policy behind that, and, and I think that's great indeed. Mm-hmm. These kids might make this a better world. Yeah. They are often on the performance side, coaching, things like that, Right. which we don't do at all, right? We are purely business. Mm-hmm. You know, I joke because we actually have a kinesiology-based recreation event sport management degree at, 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 at the University of North Texas as well. They're in Denton. They're part of the college education. And I tell students, like, yeah, if you, if you love sport, yeah, that's a degree you want to be in. If you love money, <laughs> and you want to have a business in sport and you want to be part of the professional sport you know right industry yeah then you need specialized business competencies and, and and knowledge that those degrees often do not get to because the way the degree is set up where technically the intro business courses that our students get as the core before they even go into the sport courses are their final courses and so their final courses are sport marketing sport finance you know, organization behavior in sport, those kinds of type of courses. Mm-hmm. That's what I taught before I came to the business school. We don't teach any of these courses because we already have the marketing, finance, organization behavior course. Mm-hmm. So then our courses are corporate partnership, sales, yes. venue and uh, event operations, uh, talent management, right? So we take the next step 
and, and, and are able to offer them coursework that's so specialized that by the time they finish these courses, they're ready to go to work for these people. Right. Yeah, I love that. I always, I talk to a lot of young people and, you know, people say, oh, how can I get to esports or what is your advice for a career or, you know, skateboarding, esports, etc. I tell every person, I say, gain an understanding, some sort of education in business whether it is at a university or even if it's non-traditional education. Because in, in my estimation, an education business teaches you either how to make money doing what you love or gives you the self-awareness that what you love doesn't make any money. Yeah. And I always use the example, you know, people a lot of times like, especially when I was in college, John, you're getting your business degree. You're going to open a skate shop? My answer is, I don't have enough money to lose money owning a skate shop because <laughs> they are not typically profitable. But understanding that has has saved me a lot of grief, a lot of heartache, and hopefully one day I'm wealthy enough to lose money owning a skate shop. And that'd be a lot of that'd be a great <laughs> hobby. Yeah. Take me through if so if I'm in your program and I graduate, what do I leave knowing that I didn't know before I started? Okay, well, technically, that would take me four years to explain it. Because that's what it <laughs> no. Give me the cliff notes. I, okay, so, <laughs> I, you know, the, the, yeah, the, the, the cliff notes, uh, the, the one-minute pitch is not only have you received the core business competencies that you need to know before starting a business, like, you know, how to read a balance sheet. Let's start with that, right? Yeah. Uh, how to make up a budget, how to create a marketing campaign, uh, mm-hmm. how to create a pitch deck for a corporate sponsor how to run an event and all those, how to hire a person. All right. those kinds of you know, core competencies are, are part of a degree. And then you have these, you know, let's say, industry-specific competencies that we work with you on that by the time that you're actually applying for jobs, you're ready to do the job. And that's so yeah. important in sport because, as we like to say, sport organizations like to spend their money on the field, not off the field. <laughs> Strong point. Right? Uh, Dallas Cowboys are an incredible partner. Love working with them. They are so impressive off the field, sometimes on the field, right? That's off and on. Yeah. I was very excited about their win the last Sunday. Yay. But what they don't do is necessarily having a two year talent program for, you know, hmm. NBA grads, right? right? Which is like an Amazon or a Facebook or, you know, they do that. They have those talent, talent programs. The sport organizations do not have those. Hmm. So they need to be ready to go to work and, and we make sure they are. Yeah. And I love too that you're, you're just focusing on so many tangible things that people will actually do when they go to work. Obviously, there's a lot of degrees out there that even, even my marketing degree, and I felt like I got a great education, but stepping away from, you know, get my bachelor degree, I go to an agency. I don't necessarily know how to do marketing. Right, because I, I learned the four P's and all these theories, and read a lot of books, and passed a lot of tests, and read a lot of papers. But and then you've got all your general ed, you know, things as well. And I know that's part of every college. But I love just the focus on what am I actually going to be doing. And so that's the great thing about being in a location is Frisco, because mm-hmm. all our sport concentration courses have an industry partner for which our students complete a semester-long project. So this fall, for instance, I teach a marketing class for our MBA program and our students are now working with FC Dallas to um, to help them with their marketing. You know, I, I was about to say something about the project and then I'm like, wait, this might be falling on an NDA. So let me just say, <laughs> you know, kind of like generically, 
help them with their marketing. Yeah. With the Dallas Cowboys, we're working in the international brand strategies course where they're helping Cowboys figure out, you know, how to brand their American football uh, product across the border. Talent management, which is kind of like our human resource class. We're working with the Dallas Stars on, on diversity, increasing diversity, you know, and, and, and I could go on, right? I haven't right. memorized them all. But we work with all our, our, our partners here in, in, in Dallas-Fort Worth, and these projects are so important because it means by the time our students is graduating, they have like five, six different projects in their portfolio, on their resume with, hey, consult with the Dallas Cowboys and International Brand Strategies, report, deliver, you know, available upon request. Right. Unless they've signed an NDA, which happened for some of our classes, of course. Yeah, and I can imagine if, if you're not getting hired by one of those partners, having a resume that's saying I've not just written a term paper and I, I showed up for class and passed all the, the, the classes for four years. You're saying I have worked with these top tier organizations and I love to do it for you. And I have the proof right here of the work yeah. that I do. You named, okay, the FC Dallas, the Cowboys, the Stars. Who are some of your other partners that are significant in what you're doing? It, it's hard to t- talk about organizations too much. I mean, we we... we we name the big sport teams because they hire every year. Sure. Right. But we work a lot with, with small companies. We often bring in, you know, we bring in a lot of guest speakers. So it's more on a personal title, right? Mm-hmm. You've spoken to our class a couple of times. Yep. We do that for, for, you know, for a lot of different organizations. So we work with the smaller sport teams across all sports. We've worked with the eSport organizations, both with Team Envy, Complexity. Mm-hmm. We work with marketing agencies, call satellite departments, conference, you know, we have a couple of the, the conference here, right? Conference USA. And, yep. And so we, yeah, whoever wants to work with us, if they reach out to me, and let's, let's talk because awesome. you, know, you do want to rotate it. For the semester-long projects, we do tend to prefer, you know, to give preference to our big partners because we mm-hmm. need to hire more. But we have a capstone consultancy class for our MBA students, where every MBA student individually has to do a consultancy project. Okay. And for that, we're always looking for companies say, "Hey, you want to work with our students?" Yeah. Let me know. Incredible. And Stadia Ventures is one of those partners as well. Are we able to talk about Stadia? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, no, love to talk to Stadia. So Stadia Ventures, we're we're partnering with them for our online MBA program, mm-hmm. which is technically 100% online asynchronous. Yeah. Which means there's no interaction online. It's all in your own time. You can do it at 4 a.m. in the morning. You can do it at lunchtime. You, you know, whenever it works for you, cool. you go through the the exercises. You go through the little videos that we've created. All those things. But to give them a sense of community, to give them a sense of, of, hey, I belong, and allow them for some networking with each other, but also with other people, we do three boot camps spread out over the year. Okay. Where we bring them in for a weekend, starting on Friday around you know noon to Sunday noon. Mm-hmm. We have some great speakers coming in, some panels, but we always let them work on a particular case, a theme for that weekend. And our summer boot camp, the one that we always do in August, is the, the focus is on entrepreneurship, sport tech, which I think mm-hmm. is the most exciting part for entrepreneurship in, in sports. Yeah. And so we do that boot camp in, in full partnership with Stadia Ventures. So they, they come in with their team, they mm-hmm. mentor our students and, and, and help them. You know, how do you put together a pitch? Yeah. They do it in three days. You know, that's a limited time to do something well. Right. You are able to to get a lot of those lessons across and help them kind of like come to what may be the seat of something 
really incredible one day. Yeah, I've been a part of Stadia, I want to say, four or five years now as a, a judge and a mentor. And obviously, you know, we, we got together a couple of weeks ago. And I, I think it's so cool to, for the audience to understand the students came around with their ideas to, to a bunch of us advisory board members and gave us their pitch. And then we gave them our feedback. And it's one of my favorite events of the entire year, right? So you bring in like eight, nine judges, you have eight, nine groups, and for 10 minutes, very short sessions, they have a two-minute pitch, and then it's Q&A for seven minutes. And then yeah. you rotate them through. And they just, you know, and, and it goes fast for them, right? But they learn real quickly, okay, I told this and this didn't work. How am I going to adjust my pitch now to make it sound better, right? right. And, go and every time it gets a little, bit, a little bit better. But so much fun because it's networking, and they get to know, you know, a lot of really great people in the industry, right? Because mm-hmm. the judges are all people we really respect and, and have a great background, either as entrepreneurs or as experts. And yep. yeah, I, I, I love that event. Yeah, I had, when we were doing it, there was, I, I want to say half the group was coming with metaverse concepts. And I've recently been speaking on panels in the metaverse and interviewing people, metaverse platforms and things of that nature. And it was, it was so cool that the first one came through and I was like, Yes, I actually can give you some real feedback. <laughs> I know what to tell you. No, yes. And it's a great group that you pull together. And I think for for students to be able to be part of that as well, because I remember we went to the Cowboys game, which is also a great perk of you know being part of this organization to be able to go and spend a little time in the suite. You know? and better yet, if you graduate, we take you to a Cowboys game and you get a Cowboys football. Customized with your name on there a year. That's, yes, it's, it's awesome. It's an incredible perk. And so I, I remember, you know, you were interviewing some of the, the, the graduates and saying, hey, where are you? What, what's your next step? What's your next step? And I was really surprised at the diversity of the different roles that the graduates were taking. It wasn't all... I'm going to be partnerships with the Cowboys. I'm doing partnerships with FC Dallas. It was taking those tools that they learned on the sports side and some going into sports and some going into other paths completely different. Yeah, no, absolutely. I would say, you know, we like to joke there are technically only two jobs in sports. Either you host a party or you're selling the party. Okay. Some way, right? Yep. But there are a lot of different ways you could do that. Sure. And so, you know, either you're, you're drifting towards marketing, you're drifting towards the sponsorship, you're drifting towards sales, kind of like that area, you're drifting towards the event operations, kind of like that, you know, the, the, the more doer kind of job. Or you're kind of like really now, and this is always exciting for professors as well, of course, the analytics side, which now is also yeah. business analytics and performance analytics. But yeah, no, there's a lot of, and listen, you used the word diversity. I didn't even bring it up. But if there's one thing that excites me every day about uh, UNT, it's a majority minority school. Mm-hmm. And the diversity in that program is incredible when it comes to just ethnicity, gender. And these kids come from all walks of life. And I've taught at flagship universities. I was at the University of Texas, yeah. Florida State, University of South Carolina. And I'm mostly in sport management, you know white males right and here they did that first i love it i don't know how we did that i don't know if that's just unt in general mm-hmm. well i do know it's unt in general so well that helps right but yeah it's something that excites me every day and 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 fortunately now it, it excites the organization we work with as well yeah that's great well you mentioned a little bit of your background here and so i'm putting myself in this headhunter role right now putting my headhunter hat on and i'm thinking okay if I if we are starting this new program, right? Okay, sports, entertainment, management. We've 
got this great school and we've got these great potential partners and I need to find the guy who's going to create and run and grow this program to be the best in the country. And I come across your resume. What does that say? <laughs> well, the first thing you would ask yourself, like, how do you end up with that foreigner, right? Because I'm sure that your listeners by now are like, well, I think I can place that accent. It, it's still there. I was born and raised in the Netherlands. I, I came to the States when I was 25. And, you know, been pretty much here for 20, well, now 20 plus years, I guess. But how did they end up with me? It's a combination of things. One is, I think, indeed, the international background, the fact that I worked in three different continents, the fact that I had to work as a consultant throughout my career mm. globally. Yeah. And so both with American organizations as well as, as Asian organizations, European organizations. Right? So there was, was a good track record there. Great scholarship, which was important because we are a Carnegie-ranked R1 research institution. Not a lot of people know that about UNT, but it's a really good research university. And our business school is AAACSB accredited, which is the highest and most rigorous accreditation for business schools, wow. which means that anybody you hire needs to be scholarly engaged and be able to work within that R1 setting. That thins the list of people that can do this job, right? They can time. work both yeah. with the industry, but also can do the research because there's a big gap there. Yeah. A lot of scholars, that's what they do. They're scholars, they're professional researchers. They might work occasionally with an, with, with an industry partner, but that's not really their mindset. So you need kind of right. like that, that weird guy that, that liked and enjoyed doing both and will have the research jobs, but also can stand in a room with a CEO and, and talk business without you know, losing them in scientific research jargon. And then lastly, throughout my career, even though my focus had been on, on, on scholarship, I occasionally developed programs here and there. So I, okay. I, I started the PhD program, the doctoral program at the University of South Carolina that I was running when they found me. But prior to that, I started a graduate degree in New Zealand when I was there back in 06. And I've helped create two English-based bachelor degree programs in the Netherlands. Hmm. So that was on my resume as well. So I think the combination of, hey, we have a guy here who's, who's created a program from scratch, mm -hmm. who can do the research, who can talk to the industry. Right. I think that, that you know, ultimately made him choose this Dutch guy who fortunately by now after 20 years also knows he's American sports. <laughs> How often does the word y'all sneak into your vocabulary on a on a daily basis nowadays? I've always lived in the South. I just Florida State, <laughs> University of South Carolina, University of Texas, University of North Texas. So y'all has been, you know, I, I, I don't even know how to say it otherwise. I, I don't think I've ever said, hey, you all? Do you say that? What do you say? Do you say you guys? Hey, or... you guys. Yeah, no, I, I guess I say that. Hey, everybody. <laughs> so now and then too. Yes, but hey, y'all is, uh, is, is a big part of the vocabulary. Got it. So I'm always interested as, you know, people who are successful in their, you know, in their current role, in their current discipline, where did this spark? You know, sometimes it's a direct route and you're like, I was born for sports management. My dad was a sports management educator, XYZ. And sometimes it's a Far less straight lines. Yeah, so uh, what's that in, in Holland back then, sport management didn't exist. Yeah, I probably would have done it if, if it had existed back then, but it didn't. Mm. Uh, so my bachelor and master's degree were in, in political science in international affairs. That's my master's degree, okay. University of Amsterdam. 
and, and I love sports, right? Like everybody else, I love sports. I was good enough at soccer to know I wasn't good enough. Right? Yes. So I played against really great players who showed me, like, Bob, you ain't cutting it. Sounds uh, like most of my athletic career. Yeah. Well, I think you were more <laughs> successful than I am, but... <laughs> Just <laughs> we in the skateboarding, the rest of it, yeah, um, fell short. But uh, so I had a great love for the game of soccer, you know, play video games like that. Right? Mm-hmm. Football manager was very popular, right? Where you own your own team and, you know, you get from like, you know, way down there. And so I wrote my thesis, my master thesis, which at the Dutch university, every master student has to write a thesis. Mm. I wrote my thesis on the evolution of Dutch amateur soccer teams to what they are today, which is professional entertainment limited companies well right? so mm-hmm. i wrote about that whole evolution how that happened from membership organization to you know being a, a limited you know, llc technically and i love doing that and 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 i did it quite easily i did it like two months or something you know yeah a lot of students struggle with that exercise so something that came very naturally for you very and you naturally it. and then my professor was the one who said hey you know what have you ever thought about getting your phd and i never thought about it right because I come from a blue collar family. My dad is a cop. My mom is a secretary. Okay. I, you know, I was the first one to go to university to get his bachelor's degree. Hmm. And my, my dad and mom, you know, I think my mom finished high school. My dad didn't even. Okay. My dad did go to the police academy, right? But, you know, education was not a big part of our family. Yeah. So I was, you know, first generation student. And, you know, PhD, that's, that was not, I didn't know anyone who did that. Sure. And that kind of like got me on that track. And I wanted to do it with Amsterdam in sociology. Mm-hmm. But I had a friend who played tennis at Florida State University. And he invited me over. And I visited him and I visited with some people to see if I could perhaps do an internship or something kind of like placement mm-hmm. that allowed me to compare the American sports structure with the European sports structure. Interesting. Okay. Which fascinated me back then. Still does to some extent because American sports is basically communism. Right, we share everything. <laughs> okay. Yep. Where European sports is free capitalism. Interesting. Right, so it's like the reverse worlds yeah. because you know, and, and you got those rev share models with all the teams, right? Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. something I want to get in esports in, in a little bit, but yeah, just on that point is major challenge for profitability with esports is the lack of a rev share system, yeah. and and that publishers own everything, and these teams are don't own the IP and the publishers do and they're just trying to get as many sponsors as they can to lose as little money as they can and so profit that's, is that's very European like right so okay. and that was my setup and and while I was visiting then I suddenly found out hey you can get a PhD in sport management in the United States and I never really thought about coming to the United States that was not a dream I'm not okay. here you know chasing freedom and <laughs> you know all the, the, the platitudes that we know from you the movies escaped the Netherlands and, I, uh... I, <laughs> I escaped my king and queen yes yeah. we, we are a monarchy the patriarch but, uh, yeah. you know like, like England they don't they're just symbolic but no so I, I came here and yeah I just never looked back you know hmm. the academic life fit me it gives you a lot of freedom Gives you, you know, if you have a lot of curiosity, which I have, I'm very curious. Mm-hmm. It's it's a perfect life. So yeah, I never looked back and went on that journey that took me from Florida State to New Zealand, back to the Netherlands, and back to the States. And now I've been here 20 years, married to a Texan. So you know, I'm at home right now. Yeah, go anywhere anymore, and I love what we're doing. That's wonderful. On the esports side of things, I'm very curious. Obviously, you have this deep experience with traditional sports all over the world, not just in the U.S. Esports is very global, of course, very new 
compared to traditional sports. What are some of the similarities and what are some of the differences that you see from your vantage point of esports versus traditional sports? Yeah, that's a great question. What is different? I mean, I think what different is that for esports, you're still figuring out the business model in many cases, yeah. right? So it's we, we have to wait and see where it lands to really understand what is the difference. I, in my conversations, often with students, but also with employers or with people like you, mm-hmm. I tend to actually emphasize the similarities between sport management and okay. esport, right? Where the traditional sport, esport, the competencies driving it is still making money, sales, corporate partnerships media rights you know merchandise mm-hmm. fan engagements right it's just a lot more challenging or different or there are more opportunities in esports versus you know traditional sports mm-hmm. so we haven't i mean i know there's some esports degree programs i don't get those i think that's way too specialized we don't have a basketball management program we don't have a football management you know we don't yeah. need those but we definitely talk about esports and how is mm-hmm. it different and you know it's like you said it's global it's online the activation in person life is is is, is a challenge mm-hmm. it's, it's also again it's also an opportunity right it's exciting right. It, like some of these events are very successful the the, the, the game of course <laughs> maybe that's a different bit. maybe we should start there if i'd prepared there it better i would have started with well you know Soccer or football, whatever you call it, is not owned by anything, anyone, right. or at least a nonprofit that sets the rules but doesn't have an incentive there to change the rules for whatever fits them. Right. And I think that's the big difference, of course, with esports is, yeah, we like to talk about it as like one thing, but it's an extremely fragmented industry with a lot of different esport genres, right. but games. And the games are owned by a for-profit entity that on a whim can just completely change the game or throw it out of the market to do whatever they yep. want to do, whatever suits their purpose. That makes it really challenging. Do you see that from your vantage point as like the crux of the issue with figuring out the business model is the publisher owning the IP? To simplify things, I know you could get a lot to more simplify. granular. I, I, I still wonder uh, how big truly the market is for people watching other people play, play mm-hmm. video games. Yeah. And and I particularly wonder about it a little bit more long term, right? You mentioned the metaverse earlier. Mm-hmm. And I assume that when we talk about esports, ultimately we're talking about metaverse sports. Right? Yeah, in a way. The way I would compare it is the metaverse is very similar to open world games. Mm-hmm. And uh, one great example actually, so NBA 2K is they have a, a esports league, the NBA 2K League. The There's other modes of the game that are very metaverse-like, where you're going through, you're building your character, you can buy shoes, you can buy tattoos, you're hanging out, right, in your neighborhood sort of a thing. And so a lot of the gamers, when they hear metaverse, it's kind of an eye roll. because It's like, yeah, you're just talking about basically an open-world game where I can Correct. express myself digitally. And... I talk about this all the time. I think you make a good point about what size is the actual audience. We don't talk about esports and sports in the same way. So we say, have you reached the esports enthusiast? It's 500 million people globally or whatever that number is today, right? Yeah. But we don't say, have you reached the sports enthusiast? No. It's 7 billion people globally. You know, and when you look closer at esports, it's like, okay, well, first of all, those global numbers don't really help a lot of companies, a lot of sponsors that don't have a national reach, or I'm sorry, a global reach or a global focus. Even if you're a global company, you may just be focused on one area. 
But we know, in the same way that the NBA has a different audience than Major League Baseball, it turns out Call of Duty has a different audience than Overwatch, than the League yeah. of Legends, etc. And so breaking those down into more specific audience sizes so that people have a better idea of what those are would be helpful. But what I go back to, I mean, the IP issue is a whole thing. But what I think is really interesting is if you look at how long traditional sports have been around, this last year was the 75th year of the National Basketball Association. I think this year's the 103rd year of the NFL. I don't know when soccer started, probably the beginning of the time. It's like the 11th or 12th year of League of Legends, which is the largest global esport. It's the third or fourth year of Overwatch League. And so I think, like, if you and I were to start, like, let's look at pickleball. Pickleball is probably a great example, actually. So pickleball is the fastest growing sport in the world or America or something, right? Statistics are always a little crazy because if you and I start playing and then two of our friends start playing, then it's grown by 100%, right? So I don't know how big <laughs> No, no, okay, but you're, you're confounding two things that, that often people do with esports. Please, I just yeah. start confounding esports with gaming. Yes. Right? Playing, like wiffle ball, this is good, well, pickleball, wiffle ball, any of right. games. Why are these so popular? Because they're lower accessible, more accessible yeah. games for people... You know, or not. Lower barrier to entry. entry. Yeah, lower barrier mm-hmm. to entry. Not as competitive. Easier to play as well. Yeah. And that makes it so popular to play. Now, yeah. playing is like gaming. Correct. And gaming is a whole different animal, right? We didn't talk right. about gaming Non-competitive. before. Non-competitive. I, I think, well, semi-recreational competitive. It's still competitive. You're still competing against yeah. yourself. You high score. You buddy. But I, I would say. But not organized. Right. Because right? what I would say, because there's a number, the, the bulk of the, you know, the biggest video games in the world are non-competitive games. Correct. Where you're just, I mean, Grand and, Theft Auto is still a top 10 seller at GameStop. But if you, then esports, which is not just competitive, but is a league, I think, to your point. Yeah, organized, regulated. Right. Is a, is, it's a little over $1 billion industry. I think gaming is $159 billion, if mm-hmm. I'm correct. Bigger than movies and film combined and, and, and that's what I'm saying. I think gaming will always stay around it will continue yes. to evolve but I think that the industry the sort of people who own the property here the IP are focused on that industry and that esports you know the fact that people are watching somebody else who happens to be good at that particular game at that point in time mm-hmm. I think there will always be somewhat limiting growth mm. because that will evolve right? I think that soccer in it's almost its same form and shape will still be around 100 years from now I see. Whereas League of Legends as uh-huh. a video game, I'm not certain because it's so easy to mess with. Sure, and you and don't, make you don't better. Have that, that length of time that has solidified the thing that everybody does from birth till death, right? Like if you look at baseball, I was born in 1983, and baseball is basically exactly the same. Correct. As it Whereas is today. Your kid's going to say, "Dad, I can't believe you used the console." Right. Right. I mean, 100%. at least that's what I'm assuming. I might be wrong. Right. Same thing with Maybe the flying cars. We might still be sitting with consoles mm-hmm. because the industry figured out that consoles are the way to go and to keep it profitable and to stay with these games. Right. That might happen, but I don't know. <laughs> that's, and that's, 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 that's part of what makes it so exciting, too, is I love being part of something that is being figured out. You know, I mean, yeah. I love traditional sports, but if you're going, the traditional sports aspect is more maintaining growing and growing the same thing here maybe internationally or or in another country 
but one thing that I love, and I'm not throwing shade at traditional sports because I, I love football and basketball, baseball sometimes, and soccer, specifically FC Dallas. Shout out to my friends there. But it's like figuring out the business model is so exciting and it's, oh boy, it's so challenging and it can be rough and figuring out how, you know, monetization models and, you know, but I do believe personally, I think esports is the future of entertainment specifically because every young kid is a gamer and that, and people are more and more identifying digitally. And so they will continually more and more do things in the digital world. And that doesn't mean that they won't participate in traditional sports, but we do see a decline in, in that participation. But I think just at a certain point, young people who understand gaming will then also have business experience and it'll be kind of a rough up and down over the next 10, 15 years until we get there. But at some point, that's all going to be figured out. And I, I think one thing that might happen is I think the teams who do not have the benefit of communism, as you said in American sports, I think they'll create their own game. And I think they'll create a rev share system where the game is owned by yeah, the no, orcs I, I, rather than a publisher. I can see that. Again, I think ultimately video game will not be console based, but you know, activity based. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think that's where the real jump and shift is going to be again, because it's going to be entirely different games. Right. And once I figure that out, that's you know, if I have some, if I have some money to you know, that's where I'll invest my money. Now I'm still a little bit like, I don't know what I'm going to do here. I where, could be up to date. You know, where I'm going to buy in. And I think there are other things that they still have to figure it out, right? You and I have talked about. You know, how do you run an esports facility? Right. And how do you monetize it? Right? And that's that's where the sport people come in and, and mm-hmm. they come into esports and say, hey, listen, this is how you run a facility. This is how you make sure you get the maximum you know, amount of dollars from somebody's pocket. Well, Optic Gaming is a perfect example of that. So they, they recently overtook the, the operating rights of the esports stadium in Arlington. And our good friend Jeff Moore just so happens to be their president and COO, who was at the Dallas Stars for 18 years. Chief Revenue Officer of Cirque of the Americas, the F1 track in Austin, built the American Airlines Center, built the old Dallas Stars Stadium, and I'm such a big fan of Jeff. He's been on the podcast. That dude knows how to turn a venue into a cash register. Yeah. And to see how they have taken over that those operating rights and the money they're making from the parking and the diversity of the events that they're hosting there, very multi-use, is really impressive and it's a perfect example of saying, hey, let's take this traditional sports acumen, let's pair it with people like Mike Ruffell, Hastro, who founded Envy, and Hector, who found, you know, CEO of Optic, and let's bring these the best of both worlds together and um, be relevant to youth and culture, but also have a sustainable business model around it. And what I what I like because I think that's the Overwatch, right? Where they give the the city names to the team, so it's the Dallas yep. field, right? And Call of Duty has done it now as well, but Overwatch did it first. And yeah. so, and I'll give you here the 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 the, the, the scoop because we, I don't think we've shared it with anyone yet. So I did a study with some colleagues of mine in South Carolina on uh, the Atlanta phase. Yes. Right, which was phase and then became Atlanta phase. Yep. And what we wanted to know is how does that affect, let's say, the fan base. Right. Both people within Atlanta as well as outside Atlanta. So uh-huh. we, we asked people how they identify with a team. We coded them based on zip code, like, hey, you're close to Atlanta, you identify with Atlanta or mm-hmm. not. 
Right. And what we found was that the name change possibly benefited people from Atlanta who now saw it as their team. Yeah. Right? So it increased their identity. Mm-hmm. But for the people outside the land, they didn't care necessarily either way. Which is great, right? Because you didn't damage, right. you know, you're not less global by calling yourself Atlanta Fuel. Right. Because right. that was kind of thing to worry that, well, if we put a city name on it now, mm-hmm. And the people from other cities are not going to like it anymore. Right. Our study was the first study to say, like, no, that's not happening. That might be case specific. We might have to replicate it. Yeah. However, that's not happening. But what it does do is local people will, mm-hmm. you know, will buy into it more. And, of course, you know, the local media is going to pick up on it and, right. and, and report on it. And, and I think that shows you that, yeah, different activity, but some of these basic principles of sport still play a factor and for sports that that symbolic representation of the city oh, or yeah. the university or the region or the or the country that has been so critical right With, without all yeah. those identity processes and sport would not have been where it is today because if you go to any stadium or any sport any event in the country half the people don't care about that sport or event or activity mm. they're there because of other people and because they want to be part of it Interesting. Yeah, and that's another difference between sports and esports is they have grown the opposite way. So traditional sport is essentially you and I start a stickball league. We call it Bob and John Stickball League. And it catches on, you know, here in Addison, where our studio is here. And then it grows to Gregor Dallas and then Texas and nationally, maybe globally, right? Esports has been online since day one. And so there have never been a geographic tie to any of these orgs other than if if like phases in LA like they're all their content creators live in these mansions in LA so that's like a, a loose geographic tie yeah. right and so but the only reason why you would root for a team is either you like that they win all the time or your favorite pro plays for them well and then when your favorite pro leaves their team mm-hmm. now you have a new favorite team and that's a big yeah. problem for these orgs yeah. and so when Overwatch started doing these locally based teams, I was I was at GameStop during that time and worked very close with the the Fuel and nine other teams across the country. What really opened my eyes to the benefit beyond the fandom of like I grew up in Dallas, I'm a Fuel fan, is the opportunity for sponsors. And so yeah. because esports is so global, if you're a local company, you don't have a play in esports. And my eyes were so opened, HEB the grocery chain actually just moved to Dallas, yep, but yep. from the Houston area. Very excited about that. We live five minutes away from it, so awesome. we're very excited about it. <laughs> so we had to deal with the Outlaws, the Houston Outlaws, that's their Overwatch team there. And I remember seeing the announcement, HEB, a grocery store, is sponsoring the Outlaws. Now, in esports, a bad partnerships gets burnt to the ground on Twitter and Reddit. And I had no experience with HEB. I haven't spent a lot of time in Houston. So all I knew was a grocery store is sponsoring an esports team, right? Well, everybody loves HEB. And their their partnership was very well done. It made a lot of sense when you looked in, through the details. And so Twitter just absolutely applauded the partnership and they've done a lot of things together. And it dawned on me, without that geographic tie, especially with teams being so reliant on sponsorship dollars, Mm-hmm. If you're not a national company or a global company, what's your sponsorship play? Correct. But having a local team says, we're local, 
they're the city's team and we are partnering together and it benefits both parties. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the way to you know, monetize your sport, right? Through right. local events, bringing fans in and the sponsors indeed, the hospitality, those are components that have built the sport industry, the hospitality is. And if you don't have that and you don't have the media rights, yeah, it's a tough sell as, as an eSport, <laughs> right? Because it's great right. if, you know, if, if, if 100 million kids are watching you on YouTube, but if you don't get a dime of that, you know, what's the value of it, right? Exactly. Well, we have about 10 minutes here with our episode, and I, there's a story I want you to share. And so if someone was to peruse your LinkedIn profile, of course, they're going to see all these colleges you went to and these you know prestigious roles that you've had all around the world, but they would also see Madden Gene Partner of a soccer club. Do I have that right? That is correct. Yes. Managing partner, World Soccer Holdings, and board of director member of MVV Maastricht. How did that happen? Uh, so, MVV Maastricht is a second division Dutch professional soccer team. Let's, let's start with that, right? So, we, we have okay. the end point here. As I mentioned, I'm from the Netherlands. As a kid, I played football manager, right? Like everybody in my country, you know, you take a, a, a club as, as the director from like the fifth division all the way to winning the Champions League. That was my video game. I was not a really big gamer. I never figured out my relationship with the console. Mm-hmm. But those think games, right, where I could just... Yeah. You know, I, I love that. So, that was... You know, as a teenager, you know, a, a fancy, but not one that I thought would ever become a reality. Sure. And because of my relationships here in Dallas-Fort Worth through the program, through the university, I got a text one day from a friend who said, hey, Bob, we've been approached about buying a Dutch soccer team. You know, can we pick, pick your brain? You know, that's like... Okay. I mean, who doesn't get those texts, you know? Hey. <laughs> well, it was supposed to be a one-time, let's pick your brain brainstorming session, and they would go sure. their ways, and I would go back to my university and, you know, my ivory tower and teach my students. Right. But in that conversation, they realized that I knew more than they thought I would know, and probably more, well, mm. probably I knew more than they did of this team and how it was structured. Because Interesting. I managed to you. I, I, I mentioned to you earlier this interview that I wrote my thesis about the evolution of Dutch soccer teams, how they went from amateur membership organizations with a president, a secretary, treasurer, mm-hmm. and to these modern companies. Wow. Well, mm-hmm. the thing is, with most of these companies, they're still led by membership organizations. They're shareholders or they're nonprofits that have some kind of political stake in that. So my American friends were in the midst of buying a Dutch team from Chinese owners. They would get mm-hmm. 100% of the shares, but they only would have 50% of the voting power on the board and, and through other things because of that weird hybrid construction that's in most European teams. If you want to understand FC Barcelona and you know what's going wrong there right now, yeah. that's what's going wrong. Interesting. It's a okay. membership organization. It's a nonprofit. And so I started helping them, doing research. You know, I became kind of like a consultant. But then at some point, the, the, the deal leaked. And, and one of our investors was not supposed to be named personally within this, this article because it could have cost us his job. So to save his job, <laughs> I put forward myself in the Dutch media. I had a network there. I knew some of the leading journalists. I was able to get them to change the name of the company into World Soccer Holdings, which we founded that day. <laughs> <laughs> and I became managing partner. That was technically only to be, you know, PR on 
yeah uh, in you know in name only not really the deal but it kind of like allowed me to go into the media talk to people so i i got some you know let's say temporary five minutes of fame uh-huh. in a small group of people but able to get the other name out of me. So now I was the spokesperson. I started to really take over the negotiations because they were in Dutch. And it became a hostile takeover because they were leaking on purpose. And basically mm. what we said, we're going to get all the shares, but we want 100% of all the voting power. Otherwise, we're not doing this. Sure. And they basically went to Chapter 11 to prevent our takeover. And wow. um, that meant that our leading investor, our big investor, we had one big investor, they said, guys, if they don't want my money, I'm out of here. So he he he, he left, and so now uh, my buddy and I, who really you know become buddies through all this, Scott <laughs> Dyer and I, you know, we're looking at each other like, what are we gonna do now? Uh-huh. Okay, this deal failed. We're not giving up. Mm-hmm. And I at this point already started conversations with MVV Maastricht, and their CEO, really good guy. We believe in his vision. We believe what they did. Maastricht is one of the most beautiful cities in the Netherlands, 2,000-year-old city, one of the wow. oldest cities. The EU was founded in that city. Wow. Uh, it's got an incredible cultural history, beautiful hospitality industry, everything we loved about that city. And then they had a team that has been crappy for the last 20 years, which is great because it means you can build them up, right? You just have to fix their issues. I've been watching Ted Lasso recently, so I'm really, <laughs> I really feel like I can relate I, to Well, I, I think you should watch Welcome to Wrexham with Ryan okay. Reynolds and, 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 and the guy from Always Sunny in Philadelphia, yep. which uh-huh. I feel bad for him, Rob McElhinney or something. I, I've got his name and I need to memorize it, but that one is much better. Okay. Uh, Ted Noted. Lasso is, yeah, I don't know, it's funny. <laughs> uh, I'm enjoying it. I, I, I enjoyed season one. Season two was, I, I got too serious. and like, no, guys, you have a weird premise. Don't get too serious. But anyway, so... And they were looking for a 24% a shareholder, an opportunity to become a majority shareholder in the long down the road. Mm. And we loved the deal, and, and it was a much smaller deal, of course, because you know the valuation was very favorable for us. And so ultimately, we were able to make a, a deal, which means that you know as a shareholder, managing partner, World Soccer Holdings, because I have shares, I am now indirectly a minority owner of that soccer team. And, I was there three weeks Incredible. ago for a visit, which I loved, and I'm going back on Saturday for one other week visit, which I'm actually doing because I'm asked to do a keynote in the sport marketing conference there, and I can combine that with going to my own team, and, and I'm falling in love with the team, and I'm emotional I'm every wow. Friday, because they play the games Friday night, so it's Friday afternoon here. Every Friday afternoon, I'm, a, I'm an emotional wreck, but it's been a lot of fun. That's incredible. One question for you, because of our friendship, both personally and professionally, how much greater are my chances of living my lifelong goal of becoming a pro soccer player? now that you're this managing partner <laughs> i think they went from uh, from zero to <laughs> zero point zero 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 one percent <laughs> so you're telling me there's a chance I like there it. is a chance yes all right and how what is the name of this team by the way mvv mm-hmm. maastricht m-a-a-s-t-r-i-c-h-t awesome it's a very Dutch name, isn't it? It sure is. Yes. Yeah. I was like, well, I'm not going to try to pronounce that. What a story. And how cool is it that your life experience has taken you this thing that you studied so long ago to somebody reaching out and you knowing more than probably anybody knew about it to 
best of both worlds, right? Yeah. Because I know a lot about American sports, right? I've been teaching it for 20 years. I've been right. working with all these incredible brands and organizations. And now we can, I can, imp I can implement those lessons into what, you know, where my passion was as a kid. I mean, yeah. I love, I love American football and football. I love basketball. I love golf. But yeah, soccer is, you know. Yeah. It's always that. It's about the first love and being yes. able to yes. be part of that. Last question for you. For our listeners, okay, we've talked about a lot of things. We went through your career path. We've talked about what an incredible program the sports entertainment management degree is at UNT and what makes it unique. What do you want people to come away from this episode knowing or learning? Yeah, I, 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 that's the hardest question of all. That's why it's the last one. Um, I think that the, the lessons in, in how we've built this program, how I conduct myself through life is engage. Hmm. Engage with, with, with organizations, with people, be out there, be willing to help, be willing to serve. Do not always look for a payout immediately. And so many people yeah. think transactionally, like, hey, what am I getting out of this right now? Mm -hmm. Rather than building a relationship. And when we came yeah. here, and I have to tell, tell this to, to my colleagues all the time, guys, we're not transactional. We're not looking to do a project for someone. We're building a relationship and we're here to stay. We're not going anywhere. Yeah. We don't need anything right now. We're doing great. You know, we just want to be friends. We want to help. Ask people, how can I help? And then, yeah, sometimes amazing things happen and you get a text message like, hey, you want to help us with this team? Incredible. That's, that's you know, engage. Great advice. How can people get in touch with you? How can they get in touch with the university if they'd like to apply for this program? The easiest thing is just look up my name, Bob here, H-E-E-R-E. -E. Mm -hmm. My claim to fame is I'm the most famous Bob here in the world. So if you type in my name, there's, you know, incredible. It's so much easier than John Davison or, you know, John Smith, it's right? Pretty common. It's, it's yeah. Pretty, yes. <laughs> but otherwise, T, um, Sport Entertainment Management, they'll find what they need to find. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Bob. I always enjoy opportunities to see you, whether I'm speaking with your class or, you know, we're, we're catching a Cowboys game. And it's, it's really a pleasure to host you today on the DLC Drop podcast. John, pleasure to be here. As I mentioned, you've been a very important part, very important ambassador for our program. We truly appreciate everything you do for our students and excited to, to join you here today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop podcast. This podcast is part of the Esports Futuri Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review.